in order to survive, I needed to keep my mouth shut, not argue with him. I needed to be secretive about what I was doing. Um, it's okay to do what you need to do to survive, but it's also okay to ask for help. This is episode number 158 with Krista Karras. You're listening to American Snippets, the all-American podcast for those looking to dream bigger, live better, and make an impact. Welcome back, everyone, to American Snippets. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Once again, my name is Dave Brown. I'm here with my partner and co-host, Barbara Allen. And we have another awesome guest for you on the show today, another amazing interview. But before we get to that, Barbara and I have a huge announcement, something we're really excited uh, to share with you. And that is that we just launched uh, the Great American Syndicate. We've talked about this before. We actually offered a free t-shirt for anyone who wants to check it out. That offer still stands. All you have to do is pay shipping and handling, and we'll send you one of our patriotism, not politics shirt. All you have to do is go to greatamericansyndicate.com. Uh, you know, American Snippets, here at American Snippets, Barb and I believe that patriotism is that fuel that will you know, ignite the American spirit and bring our country back together. We proudly stand by that belief, and it's exactly why we created the Great American Syndicate. We created it for patriotic Americans just like you who are tired of extremists injecting fear and anarchy into the heart of this country. So whether you are a, a vocal citizen, someone with a large platform, a member of the silent majority, it doesn't matter. Somewhere in between, uh, the Great American Syndicate is your place to connect, support, and unite with other like-minded Americans who are ready to lead by example. We're all about self, family, community, and country, and we need patriots just like you inside of the Great American Syndicate. So claim your free t-shirt today just for checking it out. Go to greatamericansyndicate.com. Inside of the membership, you'll find, most importantly, one of the biggest values is the monthly nationwide savings with over 302,000 member-only perks and discounts across 10,000 cities. You and your family can save on everything from pizza and the zoo to movie tickets, gym memberships, car rentals, hotels, and more. And we're also going to feature discounts from Made in America companies and veteran-owned companies, many of which we featured right here on the podcast. So check it out, greatamericansyndicate.com. Now let's get on to this week's episode with Krista Karras. Krista is a two-time author. She's a speaker, a teacher, a mom of three, and a special Olympics coach. Her first book, Beautiful Survivor, shares in-depth details on her life as a young girl who was preyed upon and sexually trafficked. Her story of horrific abuse and then a tragic accident that left her paralyzed just months after having a baby could have ended right there. But her new book, Turning Adversity into Glitter, shares the lessons in resilience, strength, and grace that she used to rebuild her life. In this episode of American Snippets, Krista talks about her life as a victim and a survivor. She also shares some of the lessons she's learned in the course of finding triumph after trauma and offers insight into how to escape and overcome abuse. So without further ado, here is Barbara Allen with Krista Karras. You're listening to the American Snippets podcast. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of American Snippets. I'm your co-host, Barb Allen. Listen up, everybody. I don't have to tell you that 
it is crazy, crazy times in our country, crazy times. And on top of all the political turmoil that is going on, there are some other movements that are coming forth. And one of those is a recent awareness to a recent drive to bring awareness and to combat the horrific crime of trafficking, um, specifically child trafficking, but certainly trafficking of all ages. Uh, our guest today is a firsthand expert in that with an incredible story that she is very courageous enough to share with us. And on top of that, she's also going to help us talk about things like how to combat an overwhelming situation, how to change that mindset from helpless to powerful, from victim to victor and all that, which is another common thread that many of us in this country are feeling today. There's a feeling of helplessness and despair and anger that is really dominating our, our culture today. And our guest today has very powerful insight on how to switch those mindsets into a positive path as well. Krista Karras is now a high school uh, special education teacher as well as a special Olympic coach. She's got several masters. I'm not even gonna name the number. I'm gonna give, let her give that number to us later. She is a mom of three young and beautiful children and the wife of an army veteran. Uh, she lives out in Arizona. And today she is sitting down to share her story of how not only, certainly it's a huge part of her story, uh, Krista was trafficked by somebody who said he loved her when she was still a teenager. And then she suffered an injury that led her to be paralyzed, um, specifically from the waist down. In spite of all of that, she is one of the most positive, upbeat people that you can possibly come across. She has an indomitable spirit. And so if you think that whatever you're going through gives you a reason to just sit back and give up, I get it. We've been there, done that. But listen up, especially closely to Krista's story and the things that she's got to share with you because she's got special nuggets for, for all of you, all of us to apply to our lives. Krista, thank you so much for taking the time to, to spend with us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it is very, I talk, uh, uh, well, I talk a lot in general, obviously, but I talk, <laughs> you know, one of our, I found you through a guest that we had, Jason Schechterly, um, and I found him through somebody else. And so all the, all the things that you can accomplish when you just reach out and you connect with people, you never know who that one connection is going to bring you to, is going to bring you to another. And that really shows the power of who you surround yourself with and who you allow to influence in your lives. And you can share that story as well. Let's, um, there are a lot of interesting things to talk about in addition to, to your story, some spinoffs of that that you and I were talking about here just before we started recording, but let's give our community that background story. If you would, you know, take us through, through your story, um, and, and just let everyone know like, where you're coming from and, and then we'll get to where you are now. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, just kind of looking back, I was 18 when I met a guy at a bar, which I mean, is not abnormal. That's where a lot of people meet their significant others and everything. Um, and he was from New Mexico. I was from Iowa. Um, we met in Iowa. He was working up there. Um, and it took off like real fast, just, um, and he was so good with the way he talked and, um, you're so beautiful. You're the most beautiful thing I ever saw. And this man was eight years older than me. Okay. Um, older than anybody I'd ever been with at that point, only being 18. And my mom 
was trying to get me acknowledge these red flags. Like, like Krista, he's eight years older than you. Why would he be interested in an 18 year old? And, you know, me being this like grown independent woman, like maybe he thinks I'm hot mom. Like (laughs) you don't even, you don't even know. Um, and my mom, my mom worked at a men's prison. So I very much should have listened to her. Um, she ran a background check on him and said, well, he's been arrested for this, this, and this, Did you know that. And my mindset being 18 and rebellious, um, well, he wasn't convicted of it. If he was guilty of it, he would have been convicted of it. And I, um, I had a good family life, but I was like partying and drinking my senior year. Like I wanted to live fast. Um, and so at that point, when I met this guy, I was just swept off my feet and I believed everything that he said. Um, by the time he had me hooked, he said, well, my company is going to move me back to New Mexico. So we either, I don't know how this is going to continue with you living up here. Um, so I was going to college and I said, I can go to college anywhere. You know, I can transfer down there. Let's do it. You know, um, and my mom, again, both my mom and my dad were both like, why would you move that far away, you know, from Iowa to New Mexico? What is in New Mexico? And I said, well, I could make more money down there because it's highly populated versus the Midwest. And I really wanted to see, I mean, outside of like being in this relationship, I wanted to see what was what life had to offer me. Yeah. I really wanted to see the world. So it really didn't take that much convincing for him to get me to move down there with him. And I was when you're 18, by the way, and let's just like jump in as we go. Right. 18 year olds. I have, I'm a mom to four, right? So now the oldest are 21, 20, 19. And then I have a almost 17 year old. So plus I was 18 once upon a time. So Mm -hmm. like it is, it is because already I know there's going to be people like, well, you know, when you get to the rest of it, well, why did you move? Why did you, why did you ignore the, the, um, arrest records, you know? And I will also say that there are plenty of people. And I know some, I have friends who with a significant age difference, some a good friend of mine who is my age and met his now wife when she was like 19 or something like a huge age difference. And that doesn't, that alone doesn't imply bad intent or a bad person. Right. But it is those, it's the, it's the other demographic that does have something to hide. So, um, in conjunction like that arrest warrant, but I can see, and it's frustrating for a parent to have all these things and then say to their child, but when you're 18, you don't look at your parents as wise necessarily. You look at them as obstacles. Um, to your to your dreams and trying to hold you back and why are you holding me back I just want to be me don't micromanage me like let me be you think you know everything and the more a parent digs in and pushes back and says honey you know you're still so young boom you're you're gone and there's just no right answer or wrong answer for a parent to be able to got you're going to do what you want to do at 18 19 you're gone yeah 
So that must have been rough for your parents to to have to let you go and support you at the same time. But yeah, carry on. We'll we'll stop, you know, along the way and, and break that down. Yeah. yeah. So once I moved down there, I had this life envisioned where we were going to get married at some point. You know, he talked about, oh man, I could spend the rest of my life with you. You're just so perfect. You up and moved everything for me. Um, I got established as a nursing assistant in New Mexico because that was kind of like the career that I had up in Iowa. I had a nursing certification or a a nurse's aid certification. Um, So I got established with a hospital down there. And within a couple months, he got me talked into um, sleeping with other people to supplement our income because the good job that he once had working on the road, working on the wind turbines, he was laid off from. Um, and when he brought this to my attention, I br- I brushed it off like, okay, I'll give it some attention, but I'll just acknowledge it and move on and, ma- and he won't bring it up again. Because how often do we, even with my now husband, when he says we should do this, I'll be like, okay. And then he doesn't bring it up again. Right. This is just a, it's just a thought. So that was my thought process was it's like the stupidest, grossest thing I've ever heard, but I'm going to let you think about it and then we'll move on from it. But he didn't move on from it. In fact, he brought it up more frequently. So, um, the first time it ever happened, I... I just felt so bad and so gross and I allowed it to happen. Um, you know, I could have said no. He didn't force me to do it. And I learned throughout like years of counseling that it was coercion. Mm-hmm. But I spent a really good chunk of time believing that it was my fault because I could have walked away from it. I could have broken up with him. I very well could have had that right. But reflecting back, I was not emotionally or mentally in control of the situation. Um, and once it happened once... I thought it was going to be a one-time thing. And then it wasn't a one-time thing. It became once a month and then once a week and then every day. And then one person and then a few people and then like hundreds of people. Wow. And I can see you still struggling with that right there. You know, when you, when you go back and again, it is very difficult for somebody to listen to this if you have not experienced such a similar thing um, or to some degree of it, some caliber of that. So one of the things that he always used against me was, well, this is why my marriage didn't work. And so I was kind of like, I'll be the one to, to, fix, to fix it. Or I'll be like, I just wanted to... I wanted so badly for him to be the person that I thought he was in the first August four months. 
I wanted so badly to, for him to be that person that I thought he was. And it um, progressed very rapidly. And once it did, you know, I was working 16 hour shifts at the hospital. Um, and for that reason, I mean, we did financially, financially, we did need the money for me to work extra, but I thought the more I worked, the less it would make me available. Um, but then that wasn't, it, it wasn't the case. I would come home from work, uh, working six in the morning to 11 at night. And he would have somebody just sitting there waiting, ready to go. And so you would walk in the door after working all those hours. Hi, honey. Yep. I'm home. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. I got something for you to do. Yep. Oh my goodness. Yep. So, <laughs> and I just remember being exhausted and I found through therapy that again, I'm very much not in control of that situation because that is a mentality of somebody that just wants to survive. That's barely surviving mentally, emotionally. And so I just did what I needed to do. And he, at that point had never put his hands on me. Um, but he was very mean with his words and I'm, I'm a very thin skinned person to begin with. Um, and I take a lot of things personally. So all it would take is for him to call me a nasty name or to tell me that I was fat or to tell me that um, I should just move back home to live in my hick town or something like that. And that just, I, I just, it would devastate me. And I didn't want to be that person like, no, I can, I, I can do better, but I wanted to fix him. Like I knew that he had a temper and I knew that what was happening wasn't right. I just wanted to fix it. Um, and so the longer it went on, uh, it went on for a couple of years and I'll tell this story. I, I got pregnant in 2011, no, 2009. Sorry. It's like a established this timeline. Yeah. Yeah. Four years of a blur. So I got pregnant. Um, I had my son and I mean, you know, as a mom, you, you have the healing process six weeks after you give birth to a baby. Um, he had me with somebody within a week and this man that he had me um, sleep with was like actually very nice. You know, he could pick up on all the nonverbal cues and he could tell that what was happening was painful. And I, you know, I started crying and, he, and I said, I'm sorry, I just had a baby. And he said, yo, bro, like, I can't, I didn't know she just had a baby. I didn't know these things about your girl, like, I, I can't do this to her. And my ex got so angry and was like, no, she's fine. She's fine. And then when he said, no, I, I can't, I can't do this to her. He said, you fucking ruin everything. 
why do you ruin everything? And I said, I'm sorry. I was trying not to cry. And I shouldn't, I shouldn't have apologized to him. I shouldn't have been sorry, but I said, I'm so sorry. Cause I just did it. I I didn't want it to be my fault. Um, and that was like really the breaking point when I realized that what was happening was going to like kill me if I continued it. Um, and so I kind of started formulating plans to move back home. And that's when he started throwing things in my face that I was going to be a single mom. Um, that no one was going to want me raising a baby by myself. And like, I had gained weight from this pregnancy that, that I was fat, you know, again, that's, that was like the main the main thing that I was going to be this fat single mom. Um, and looking back, I mean, we all, we all know single parents. Like I was a single parent, you know, um, you ended up being a single parent and it's like, that shouldn't have been my reason to stay, but for some reason it was. Um, and I ended up staying and then I ended up getting into a motorcycle accident Um, and I broke my neck and became a quadriplegic. So not only was I with this guy that was emotionally abusive to me, then I sustained a spinal cord injury. And then it was even harder for me to get away from him because like I couldn't walk. (laughs) Um, and I had a baby, like a, a new baby. So now you're completely physically dependent before you were emotionally dependent on him and now you're also physically dependent on him and even backing that up a little let me ask you how did you balance that stress because you were effectively living a double life your family didn't know what was happening i'm imagining your co-workers or your patients would look at you in one light and have no idea that when you returned home you were facing what you were facing when you got home. Um, like, so you had to put on a completely different front outside of your home. You know? Yeah. There was like a couple times I, I would self harm and I would cut because that was really the only thing that I knew to do besides like drink alcohol or something. Um, to relieve that type of stress. And I remember going to work and one of my coworkers saw, saw, um, the cuts on my wrist and she asked me about it. And I just, I just couldn't, I didn't want to paint this negative picture of him. And I didn't want to show that I was struggling, even though it was very apparent that I was struggling, that I was always tired, um, that, you know, Krista will always pick up a double shift. Ask Krista if you want her to work a shift for you. She'll always work it. I mean, that's, that's not normal to right. live at work. Um, but nobody was ever invited over. Um, sometimes he would kind of like go off through text messaging and yell at me about something I mean, he yelled at me about everything. And if I was on my phone, just texting away, I mean, people, people knew, you know, if I, if I had a mood, if I was just this happy person and I had a mood, but, um, 
yeah, it, it really was a, a double life because it's embarrassing. Like I thought, I thought that it was my fault and I definitely wasn't going to tell my mom, you know, and my mom knew that he had anger issues because at one point he threw like a, um, a flat iron for my, my hair. I was straightening my hair and he got, we got into a, an argument and he threw it at me and it broke. And I had called my mom and said, can you send me my other flat iron from home? Cause he broke it when he was mad. So she, I would kind of vent to her about things that we fought about, but I, I never told her that. Um, because I was really ashamed of it. And I knew, I mean, I knew she wouldn't be okay with it. Like right. As a mom, I I would die inside if I found out that that was happening to one of my kids. I w- I didn't want to put my mom through that. Right, and so that's the other thing, right? You you start to believe that now it's not even about you anymore. You start to really believe that you're the least significant player in this because all these other people are more important. First, you can't disappoint him. You have to fix him, save him, and then you don't want to upset your parents. Uh, and then you have a baby to, to take care of and that baby comes first and nowhere in that equation do you factor in. It's just become like you're you're just almost irrelevant in that because this is this is where you are and these are all those people you have to take care of and it's your job to make sure that none of this balance, this illusion of balance is disrupted, right? And that's, again, mm-hmm. it's hard for people to understand when you're not in it, but when you're in it, man, it's just, it's the only, it's perfectly logical to you and you just, accept it. You say, well, this is the way it is. I'm going to make the best of it and take care of all these people around me. And at some point it'll change. Mm -hmm. Right. So now, now you're paralyzed uh, from the waist down and completely and totally dependent on this person for your own care, but also for your child's care, your baby. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so I know when I tell people this story, I almost, I could understand why people wouldn't believe me if I told them, because I don't know how anybody could do this. But once I came home from the hospital, he became physically abusive. Um, He was like my primary caregiver until um, I could get insurance to cover it. So he had to get me dressed. And I'm actually paralyzed from the chest down. So I broke my neck. Um, I wasn't able to use my arms until like a month after. Um, and even then, like what I have now is very substantial compared to right away because um, I, I don't have finger um, flexion. I have really good wrist flexion but I couldn't get dressed. I couldn't feed myself. I couldn't do a lot of very basic things. Um, and so when I got home, he, the trafficking stopped, thank God, but he started, um, beating me. Um, it started one day when he was trying to get me dressed. Um, he said that he had errands to run and he needed me to get up, but my body was still regulating um, the medications that I was on. And I would get really, really sick when I took them. And so I said, can I please lay down a little bit longer because I don't feel good. And he was trying to force me to get up, um, trying to force the shirt over my head. And um, I bit him in the shoulder 
because he wouldn't let me lay down and I was going to throw up on him. And so when I bit him in the shoulder, he punched me in the face and then he grabbed me by the feet and pulled me off my bed onto the floor. And he said, get your fucking self up. Excuse my French. Um, but after that happened, like my, the back of my head hit the floor and I was bawling like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a lot. Uh, it's like, I mean, it's like a, being a quadriplegic on your back is similar to a turtle on their back. Like I couldn't sit up. I couldn't roll over. I was just like, and one of the things with this injury is like all the muscles in your trunk and your core deteriorate. So I was hyperventilating crying and I couldn't breathe very well, you know, Ugh. Um, because like my lung capacity and all that stuff is affected by it. So I'm laying on my back, just bawling. And then I hear my son in the other room crying. And immediately I just thought, get the baby, take care of the baby, get the baby. And he came and he slammed the door. So I couldn't, he couldn't hear me. And that was the very first time, um, I mean, there was one time that he threw me out of my chair. He, I, I had been punched several times over the course of the next couple of years. But the main thing that he did was um, choke me. He was like, he was an amateur MMA fighter. That was kind of his hobby. But when he got angry, he, he choked me a lot, like almost every day. Oh, my goodness. Geez, um, you just rolled this into your daily experience and learned how to just get through those things where, you know, one time would be enough for anybody to go through any of that. And you built this wall around you. Let me just ask, um, when when you had this accident that he wasn't injured in, but you were, how did you, how did you handle your family then? I mean, them. Did they want to come down? Did they want to help you? And were you like, stay away? Or how did that? And and also then when you had the baby, like had they still not come, been able to come down and see you? you? You still kept them completely separate? So I had my son in March and my mom and dad drove down to see the baby in May. Um, and my mom and dad spent that time trying to talk me into coming home. And... I was like, no, everything is good. We're going to be a family. Everything is good. And that was like my very last chance to go home with them. And then I ended up getting injured a month later. So then when I got injured, um, the nurse at the hospital asked me if I had anyone I wanted to call. And I mean, I said, like, call my babysitter, get I need I'm going to be a little late today. (laughs) Yeah. I, I like, I, somebody needs to take care of my son. If I'm going to be here, I didn't want the state. Um, and then I said, will you call my boss because I'm not going to be in at work. (laughs) Um, and she said, sorry. And she said, do you want me to call your mom? Like, and I said, no, don't call my mom. She's going to be so mad. (laughs) And I, at that point, I didn't know what the extent of my injuries were, but I kept hearing spinal cord injury, spinal cord injury, spinal cord injury. 
And being a CNA and a, a lifeguard in high school, I knew a spinal cord injury meant that you probably couldn't walk. And so I was like, my mom will be so mad that I wasn't wearing a helmet on the motorcycle. And she said, if one of my boys got injured like this, I would want them to tell me. And I, I was like, okay, okay. So we called my mom and I said, but don't come down. Please don't drive down because you guys were just here a month ago. And they ended up driving down anyway. Um, the hospital, at that point, I was 20. So um, I was over 18, obviously, and they didn't give my parents a lot of information. They just knew that I was in an accident. So when my mom and dad got there, they didn't realize that I was in a coma for a couple of days. They didn't realize that I was on a ventilator. They didn't know that I had a spinal cord injury. And when they got there, they didn't even tell my mom and dad where I was. Oh. Mm -hmm. And so my brother, who was a police officer up in Iowa, he was with them and he was able to kind of talk to the doctors and the nurses and be like, look, my parents drove like 1300 miles. Can we please see my sister? And so they let them. Um, and my mom was just devastated because they didn't, she didn't know it was that bad. Um, and then my ex just had the audacity to tell my parents, like, I tried to stop the bike. I tried to stop. I tried so hard to save her. And my dad, my dad never liked him. And he's like, that's your fault. That's your fault. This is, this whole accident is your fault. You know, um, but I, I still never, I just felt so bad. Like I was burdening them. Like you guys shouldn't have had to take off work and drive back down here. And it's my own fault because I wasn't wearing a helmet. It's my own fault. And my mom was just like, please let us help you. Like, it's fine. Stop apologizing. Please let us help you. Um, but I was just so drugged up that at that point, like I had hit since I broke my neck, I had hit my face, like my whole face, um, on the side of a fire truck. That's who I got into an accident with <laughs> motorcycle hit a fire truck, T-bone fire truck. Um, and I had a lot of like swelling in my brain and a lot of trauma to my head and my face. Um, so I was very <laughs> much not with it, but those are the pieces that I remember. Um, and they stayed for about a week. Um, and then they went back home. So I literally was under the care of like a social worker. Um, and then I'm lucky that I was able to survive that because they, they would not give my mom the right to make medical decisions for me. She tried to become my power of attorney, but they would not let her. Um, and I, again, as a mom, I can't even imagine not being able to make medical decisions for my child. You know, if they end up having to like pull life support or something like that, you know, that they wouldn't give that to my mom. It was, that was the right of the social worker. So I was able to pull through it and I was able to go to therapy and rehab and everything. But, um, I felt relatively safe 
when I was in the hospital and at therapy, because I was under the direction of all these doctors and nurses and therapists. Um, but once I went home, I wasn't. Right. It was <laughs> him. Yeah. And so now you get through all of that and you're home and you have uh, an infant to care for. And it took you a couple more years of experiencing all of this abuse on a regular basis. And your son is starting to walk and maybe start to talk and things change for you. And at some point you say, it's time I'm getting out. And you made that happen. So the, the day that I decided that that needed to happen, um, I, I mean, I still, I didn't know how to cook. Like I couldn't use, I couldn't use my hands. Like right now I can, I can use like my wrist flexion and everything to hold simple things like a marker or a spoon or whatever. And I can cook now, but at the time, um, I didn't know how to do those things. I didn't know how to brush my hair, brush my teeth, do anything. So I asked him if he could get me something to eat. And he said, I'll get it when I'm done. And I said, will you please get me something to eat? I don't even know what he was doing. I think he was on the computer. Um, Something that definitely could have waited. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I got snippy with him um, and said, please get me something to eat. (laughs) I'm hungry. Um, Because if you ever raise your voice to somebody like that, or if you challenge somebody like that, they just, oh, no, no, no. So he came and he strangled me. Um, and I blacked out. I was sitting on the couch. I couldn't like get up or roll away or anything like that. Um, he strangled me. And when I came out of my blackout, I texted my mom and I texted, uh, one of my friends and they called the police. The police came to our door saying that they, um, got a 911 call about a domestic situation and they didn't separate us. They questioned us together. And what am I going to say? What if they don't arrest him? Um, And that was my fear. I was like, what if they don't arrest him? And then I'm going to be stuck here and he's going to kill me or he's going to kill my son or something. Um, So I just said, yeah, no, it's fine. Um, I I probably would have if they would have separated us, but they didn't. Um, I didn't want to say it in front of him. So then after that situation, I started realizing like, okay, I'm going to die if I don't leave. So it took about a year after that to get it all together. We were able to, I convinced him to move back up to Iowa where my family was. Um, I was able to get my first job and save some money. I was able to get an apartment, but I mean, these things take time. Um, and I had to have friends like waiting on standby to take some of my clothes and I had to take things out of my house slowly. So he wouldn't notice. Yeah. And so, okay. You finally, you make that happen. And I believe you had convinced him to move back to Iowa with you to get back to, back to your community, back to your families. And then when you told him that was it game is over. Like this is, this is not going to happen anymore. He didn't just say, okay, I understand. Good luck, Krista. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) You know, it's not exactly how that went. 
Absolutely not. So he pulled a gun on me when I told him that I couldn't do it anymore. And I had been finding my voice over that year because I had my mom and dad um, close by and I was falling into a norm of, you know, being in my chair and everything. Um, and I said, like, I'm not doing this anymore. Like I got loud with him one day. I am not, this is not working out. Um, you're mean to me. You're abusive. Like you, I'm not going to just be in something like this anymore. And so he pulled a gun on me, um, put it in my face. I had my son on my lap. He was a little over a year old. Um, and I had, I had my arms up like this like to protect his face. Um, and my ex started like punching me. He was punching me in the face, punching me in the arm. And I just didn't want my son to get hit. And all I was thinking was like, I'm not even a threat to you. Why are you hitting me? Um, and he threw my phone, he broke it. And he said, I left everything in New Mexico for you. Like I, have given up so much for you and you want to just fuck me over. And I'm like, I screw you over. What? <laughs> and so I de-escalated that situation. It was like very difficult to de-escalate that situation, but I had to play like, okay, okay, we'll make it work. It, it'll be fine. Everything's fine. We're all fine. But then after I realized that he was, I, I didn't think he would actually go as far as to pull a gun on me. Like that's something that you see in movies. So he had pulled a gun on you and you managed to de-escalate that situation because you have a lot of experience understanding how to de-escalate him at your own expense usually. And you finally, you get him out and you get to start your life and how you've now and i'm and i'm sort of you know putting this in bullet points because it is it is so much but i really want to make sure we don't run out of time before we get to where you are now because that story is, is terrible and awful and um i mean you're a warrior for coming for coming through that the way you have but and i really want to land at at where you are now now you are a teacher you're a mother of 3 you somehow went on to have two more children, even though you have this injury that you are dealing with. And I know a lot of people would just say, all right, that's it. I can't, I can't do this is, you know, put limits on their life and just look at that and say, okay, well now I can only do X, Y, and Z, but you don't seem to be the kind of person who looks at, looks at the injury, looks at anything you've been through and said, well, you know, this is the best I can expect. You have gone for it. You have built a life that people would you die for almost, you know, who would be so super jealous. I'm sure people look at you and like would want your life. That's the life that you wanted. And, and you did it in spite of all of these things that you've been through. How was it? How did you get to from that, that place where you had just found your voice and just got him out and just managed to move on? Now you're still a single mom in a wheelchair. Um, what was that difference in your mindset from before, like before nothing changed that you were still a single mom in your wheelchair, but now you're a single mom in your wheelchair saying, I'm going to do this anyway. You know, where was that flip in your, in your mind? Like that switch. So, although I am 
very sensitive and thin-skinned. I'm also very um, strong-willed and hard-headed. And so I was at a point where he had controlled, not only had he controlled four years of my life, I felt like he took so much away and I was going to be damned if he let me, if, if he took everything like the rest of my life away. And I was only 21, 21 when I, um, finally got away from him. And that's young, you know, and I wanted to be a good mom to my son. It wasn't, he didn't ask to be brought into the situation and then to have a mom in a chair with like limited physical capabilities. And so I wanted a good quality of life. I didn't want to live on disability. I didn't want to sit at home. I didn't, you know, I wanted to be able to do normal things and make my life enjoyable. So. Um, I started with going back to college, um, and I knew with my past, I had a really good story that I could use to help other people. Um, and then, you know, I did date a couple guys after him, and they weren't good ones. And I, I kind of was at a point where I was like, girls in wheelchairs aren't meant to be married. we're high we're like a lot of work and we're not meant to like be in long-term relationships I kind of came to that conclusion and then I met my husband when I wasn't even looking he was stationed over in Japan and one of uh, my friends that I met at a single mother's group her husband was also stationed with him and they introduced us And I spent a lot of time telling him things that were wrong with me, um, telling him about the baggage that I had and basically throwing it at him. Like, just so you know, I can't open my hands. (laughs) (laughs) Just so you know, um, I have a kid that um, I conceived when I was being raped by multiple men. And he said, I think you're freaking awesome. Like, look at everything that you have and you're really beautiful. And just, I don't know, look at everything that you're doing. And so after a while, he was like, just stop, stop trying to push me away. Like, I think that you're great. And so I'm like, all right, so let's take this to the next level. And then from there, I mean, we, we got married. He was in the army for five years. I went with him wherever he was stationed. Um, we decided to have a couple more babies and then he got out of the army and now he's a police officer, you know, and we have, it's like, definitely we have, um, issues like any other couple does. Um, but he really stepped up to like all the, all the things that I had to bring. And I don't know very many people that would have done the same. Um, And I just, I wanted my kids to be proud of what I was doing. I knew that at first I wanted to be a therapist for battered women like myself, but I realized that, I realized that, um, if I turn that into a job, it was going to inhibit my own healing. Yeah. You can get, you, you, 
without even realizing it, you become that professional victim almost. And yeah, it can be detrimental. So yeah, so so now you're a special Olympic coach and a teacher and you're teaching children, which you're also adding your own flair to because you're teaching them, you know, about mindset and as well as you know, curriculum stuff. And that must be just so cool to be able to to go into that classroom every day and to look at these little minds and to know that like hey you came through imagine could you have reached back in time to tell yourself in new mexico hey you know what krista one day you're going to get out of this one day you're going to have this beautiful family and you're going to be a teacher that parents bring their children to like when you were filling your head with all that shame and thinking you're this low person now you have parents entrusting their babies to you. And there's really no greater form of trust than that, I think. Um, so if you could look back and tell that Krista in New Mexico that all of this is going to happen, do you think, um, I mean, you know, do you ever just look back and say, what, what a spread and how far you've come? Yeah, I, and I still, I still think it's really important, even though that was 10, 11, 12 years ago, um, it's still really important that I get my therapy and my counseling because I still have to remind myself that those things were not my fault, but also, um, I just, there, I, I've come to realize that that me, that me comes out in the form of PTSD and it comes out in the certain situations with the fight, flight, or freeze. And I keep having to tell my, my old self, my 19, 20, 21 year old self that, um, it's okay. I don't know how I survived that. I there's, I don't. And I feel like I would be doing other victims a disservice by staying quiet about it. Um, and these kids, because I teach high schoolers, a lot of kids come from broken homes and come from trauma. And while they might not relate to me, like on a, a very specific level, as far as like being paralyzed or being sexually assaulted or anything like that, like I really enjoy being able to kind of be the poster child of overcoming all these obstacles. Um, you know, and I, I, I have a lot of kids that are like, Miss, I'm so proud of you. You're in a you get here, you get here earlier than we do and you're in a wheelchair and they're just so sweet about it. Um, you know, so so, I mean, you do come from a good place of resilience and, and I think maybe I would imagine that you're able to look at these students who, if they're saying, I'm having a bad day, I'm having this or that, and just something like where other people would not understand how to coach somebody through that moment, you've developed those skills and you're able to, to guide them through moments where, where they get frustrated and all that. And I want to touch on something again, that you and I had spoken about before, because even now, as you're sharing this story, you could tell at some points, 
um, you know, you, you get kind of pulled back and, and it gets hard for you to talk about. And then at other points you're able to, to just go on and ramble like this happened, that happened. And there can be a misperception uh, and I want to give you a chance to, to talk about it. I want to give our community even a chance to, to hear this because it's a whole other aspect that a lot of people don't think about. And even you just saying, you know, that it's important to share your story because you can be doing other people a service. It, while you're up here and you're very well spoken and you're sharing this story, it is not necessarily an easy thing to do or an easy uh, trait to develop. And you're able to do that. Um, almost matter of factly in some points, but that doesn't mean it's not still, you know, hard for you when you come off of an interview, when you come off of an interview like this in, for instance, do you need like a recovery time? Do you need to kind of go back and transition back into life before you like, go grab your kids and your, your mom again? Like, do you need to kind of just say, okay, that's over and, and go back. How do you get through that? What are some things that you do to kind of psych yourself up to take yourself back to that place and then to get back out of it so that you can move on because there's going to be a lot of people who are, are also thinking that they should share their stories, but you can't just go into it thinking you're going to share your story and come out and it's going to be okay. You have to develop so sort of mechanisms. I've realized over the past few months that the more I talk about it, the more therapeutic it is. Um, the very first podcast I ever did, um, I kind of left that podcast like okay, cool. I did a good job. And then that night I was just so angry at, at my ex. Um, but I found myself trying to repress emotions and telling myself that they were wrong, that my feelings were wrong. Um, but then I started, I started to realize that I need to embrace the emotions that I have. Um, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to be angry. Um, but when I get done talking about it, I make sure to spend more time with my kids because I wouldn't even have my kids if I would have given up so easily. Um, and I, especially my daughter, I have two sons and a daughter. My daughter's the youngest. Um, she's the one that I look at and I imagine her being a little me and I just look at her. She doesn't realize it. I just look at her and I'm like, I will kill whoever tries to do this to you. Like, <laughs> and I keep telling myself, like, you need to raise her good. Not that my parents didn't raise me good because they raised me very well, but I'm like, I need to prevent this from happening to other people. I need to prevent it from happening to my baby. Yeah. Um, and that's where I get the most emotional. It's just like, is right. Is just right there. Yeah, I bet. I bet. And so what would be your, your words to somebody who maybe somebody's listening to this, who's going through something similar or something on another level that they feel trapped in any way and just have no idea how to take that first step to stand up for themselves and and understand that it's okay to to stand up for yourself and that doesn't make you selfish or an asshole or whatever it is but like what would be your advice to somebody who is listening right now and and wants to change the situation and, and doesn't know how 
So I would say you need to do what you need to do. So in my case, in order to survive my, my ex, I needed to, this is what they call the freeze response of PTSD. Um, in order to survive, I needed to keep my mouth shut, not argue with him. I needed to be secretive about what I was doing. Um, it's okay to do what you need to do to survive, but it's also okay to ask for help because for so long, um, I didn't listen to my brother who was a police officer. I didn't listen to my mom. I didn't listen to other police officers, um, because I didn't think that there was any helping me, especially once I was injured. Like, no, you don't understand because I'm paralyzed. No, people, people want to help. The majority of people are good and they want to help. And it's okay to ask for help. If you, even if you think that, you know. Yeah. Thank you for that. And then what would you um, say to people who are just in wrapped up in the current situation in, in the country and maybe just feeling the impact of the fear and helplessness people are feeling. I I know that's happening. We're getting messages and comments from people and I felt it too. It's hard not to feel it, right? Like you feel like you're just helpless to stop what's, what's happening today. You're told that you can't work. You have to watch your business go under, you have to watch this or that. And then people, the feeling of helplessness that can overwhelm people. How would you suggest that they like push through that feeling to, to move into positive action? Yeah. Um, So with my work situation and with my kids learning at home, and then I have to teach remotely, it's very isolating. It's an isolating feeling. And then not having the gym as an outlet to relieve frustrations and everything. I have to remind myself that it's temporary and I, I can't, imagine what it feels like to be a business owner, to own a business and not be able to push through that right now. I I don't know what that feels like, but I do know that it's temporary. Excellent. Thank you. All right. So one of the reasons that we started American Snippets, and it seems a little even more relevant now, is that we, even three years ago, we saw the divisiveness start to take a hold of this country and it bothered us. And we saw the helplessness and we saw people saying that the American dream is dead. And we saw everybody talking about why things are impossible. And we knew a, that there are more good people in this country than bad people for sure. And we knew that there's more possibility than limitations. We knew all those things, but we wanted to, to bring that out through American snippets. And we're firm believers that the American dream is in fact alive and well, even now, even now, right in this COVID crisis. But the key factor is that it looks different for everybody. We all have our own unique vision of what the American dream means and what it means to each of us individually is what makes it so special, I think. So I'd like to ask you, what is your own version of that American dream? Um, It's definitely the quality, the quality of life. It's not money. um, It's not stuff. I just know that I know what it feels like to have my ability to walk taken away. I know that I never got to walk in the sand before I got injured. Um, There are a lot of things that I didn't get to do before I lost my ability to walk. So now that 
I live a life where I can teach others how to be successful, teach my students how to be successful. I can come to work and I can enjoy it. It's not a job that I have to work. I come to work and I enjoy it. Um, And then I can go home and see my children and have a conversation with my husband over dinner. Like that is the American dream to me because so many people don't get that. They don't, they don't get those things or they don't, they don't have a job that they enjoy. They don't get to have children. They're, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And I'm, I I love that you said that and you just broke it down to something. So I don't know why that just got to me so hard when you were like, you know, the whole walking in the sand thing, because, um, I mean, I think it is really important to, to break it down into, into perspective and none of the stuff that bothers us on a day-to-day basis really matters in the, in the long run. So many things we all take for granted. And I, I want to thank you so much for for sharing your story and i know i feel like i could go on this path with you for hours because it's such an intense story and i know we only had so much time and it's hard for me to kind of break it up in time because it's so powerful and it's so important and i really have such huge respect for you and not only in the example you set but i know it takes courage to come out and share your story i know it is not as easy to do, um, even though it's helpful and good. I get that, but it does take a certain different kind of strength to to flip that everything you've been through. So I want to thank you very much for trusting us to be a platform to share that on yeah. and, and to connect you with our community. If people want to follow up on you, find that book that you wrote, which I didn't even get to mention yet. Um, tell us about the book you wrote and where they can can find you and connect with you. So I'm on Amazon. My book is on Amazon. My first book is called Beautiful Survivor, Overcoming the Statistics. Um, and I'm on Instagram on, under um, roll underscore and sparkle. Um, my Facebook is mostly used for personal uses. I just put a business page up for Facebook under the same name for roll and sparkle. Okay, great. And we'll put those links in our in our article because we're you know okay. we'll put that article up about you and we'll share all those links. Krista, again, thank you so much for taking the time and for for the energy to take yourself back through that story and applying those lessons that you learned. I really think that now more than ever we need to just surround ourselves with people like you and messages like yours and and um, you know all push through kind of this overwhelming time together. So thank you so much. Thank you. All right, everyone. There you have it. That wraps up another episode of American Snippets. Thank you so much for being here today and tuning in. I'd like to personally thank Krista Karras for being here as well and sharing her incredible story. If you got any value out of this episode, if Krista impacted you with her story and her message, uh, please share this podcast with a friend. Let them know what we're doing here. Uh, Share this podcast on social media, Instagram and Facebook. Uh, Make sure you leave us a five-star review on iTunes. iTunes go a really long way in helping us get these stories out there in front of more people. Uh, Again, we appreciate you being here today. Don't forget, 
each and every week. We do a full write-up on every one of our guests. So go to americansippets.com, check out the featured article of the week. You can re-listen to the podcast, watch the video interview, uh, read the article, and we'll also include some links there that you can use to purchase Kara's books and follow her on social. Uh, Don't forget, go back to last week's episode. We did an amazing interview with Major James Capers. His story are are the things that legends are made of, so you're going to definitely want to tune in to that one as well. Don't forget about the Great American Syndicate. Claim your free patriotism, not politics shirt by going to greatamericansyndicate.com. Thanks for being here today. Now go out there and show the world how exceptional you truly are. (laughs) 